Hello, everyone. Uh, I it's my pleasure today to have Danielle Yusia and Ikuye. And we had this discussion before, and I apologize again. It's a French name, Swiss French name. I remember that part. And it's a pleasure to have her on the show because we don't have that many women in investing. We don't have that many women who are authors in investing. Right? And that is a rare combo. And we don't have that many people in women in investing, authors in investing who invest globally especially in, here in Australia. So it's my real pleasure to have Danielle here on the show. And I'm going to ask her, you know, she has a long CV of working overseas and working in equities and now doing her own thing. And she has a site website, which I would refer you to. We'll have that in the show notes, uh, shareplicity.com.au. Um, two books there for people to check out. But I'll let Danielle introduce herself uh, to us. And then after we're done, hearing her story from her mouth, <laughs> her version, I will ask some questions. Again, this is going to be all about her talking and me just listening and just guiding the conversation. Thank you. Over and I've you. got to get your pronunciation of your name correct now, and I'm going to do it incorrectly. Anibam? Oh, that's that's very close. Better than what I did for your last name, right? So <laughs> I with, love with it. people from different backgrounds, this is what happens. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And um, when you've worked overseas like I have and worked, because for your audience, your listeners, I worked at Bearing Securities, which was a very, very famous emerging market stockbroker um, for England, supposedly oldest bank who was also the queen's bank and was obviously very famous for going spectacularly bust in 1996 but we had a trading room floor with 300 people from across the globe and trust me uh, when you did emerging markets and you had all these wonderful characters from around the globe sometimes the pronunciation of names went a little awry (laughs) (laughs) that's fantastic yeah So so as you yeah sorry go on Please go on, please. Uh, Again, as I said, it's your floor is to you. Okay. So look, really briefly for your listeners, uh, I trained as an equities analyst here in Australia. I did a commerce degree, um, which was probably, it was starting then and back in uh, the early 80s of women actually moving more into finance. It was an amazing time of change. There was the big bang in London and a company called Barclays Desert Wed came out to Australia. Of course, that's now all since disappeared. Um, it was gobbled up by um, ABN AMRA and then Royal Bank of Scotland. But the long and the short of the story is, as I trained as an analyst, I then moved to London and I did emerging markets, uh, specifically smaller Asian markets to start with, known as TIP, Thailand, Indonesia and Philippines. Very lucrative. Bearings um, held most of the market share with Flemings, which has become JP Morgan. Amazing times, 1990s. Uh, People could not get enough of emerging markets at the time. It was a real, real boom. And uh, then it all went very pear-shaped. We went bust, Asian currency crisis, long-term capital management, say no more. And uh, I ended up back in Australia in 2003 after I uh, got divorced, after I'd had my son. And at that stage, I decided that I wouldn't move back into finance because it's that awful trade-off that 
women sometimes have to do where childcare costs are so expensive that you have to go back into a big career. And in going back into a big career, you don't see your child. So I did, I actually decided that I would just start down the pathway of managing my own money. And really that took place at the start of the GFC when I had tried a number of different fund managers to look after my money. You may say that's a bit bizarre, but stockbrokers are renowned for being dreadful managers of their own money. We're we were great at giving advice, but actually managing our own money, it was never a great story. But then I decided, why am I paying people to lose my own money? I can do that really effectively myself. So basically, I've been doing it now for um, since 2008. And as you said, I made a decision, which I might chat about later on in um uh, the chat, um, how I moved out of Australian equities to gain exposure overseas. So, yeah, that's basically my story. It's over three decades, far too long for my liking. <laughs> you know, that three decades means you have you've seen the um, the Asian uh, the, the Asian currency crisis. You've seen the GFC, and you've seen the uh, the COVID crisis as well. So, I mean, you've seen, actually that that is huge, right? Seeing working through three three different sort of events big events right financial events that you know sort of moved stock markets so i think that's fantastic I you, think that, you missed the 87 crash that was a that was a good one too uh, I missed it. Well, I missed the eighty-seven crash. You know, because you said you you said you started in the nineties, so it's okay. So no, ignore. no, eighties, eighties, <laughs> Okay, so that's another one. Mm. Okay, I am going to uh, ask you a little bit about your investing style, given that you've you know invested for so many years, right? Basically over decades. Uh, you know what's what's the style now, and I guess how has it evolved over time? That's a really good question. Um, I actually, when I lived in London and I was earning really good money, investing was very much a process of diversification and risk management. So I'll just really touch on that briefly. So most of my savings actually went into property at the time and the leftovers went into equities. But if you're working in equities, you don't really, some people did double up their exposure to equities. I took an alternative route. And I think that is a good indication of how I like to manage my money. It is a case for me, and it always has been, about growing the savings whilst managing risk. So when I took control of my money in 2008, I had a bit of a steep learning curve. I know it sounds silly, but I'd been doing emerging markets, etc. And I went very much down the traditional path of kind of blue chip Australian companies. But I learned very quickly, um, something that I'd learned when I did emerging markets is that that unknown factor called quality, okay, with companies is still really important in a developed market. In emerging markets, it was absolutely critical. Uh, because when the countries like Philippines, Indonesia, you know, India, you, you know what it's like, they see all this foreign money coming in. And for them, it's like, wow, this is free lunch, we can potentially, you know, make the most of this. So it was really important when we were putting the institutional funds into the emerging markets, I used to say, it's worth paying up for a company that you could sleep well at night, that you knew that they kind of weren't going to abscond with the funds. Now, I'm not saying Australian companies have that same disposition, but I have learned over time that my portfolio style is probably more orientated in that direction. Having said that, um, I'm not averse to um, probably in some instances 
taking bets on companies which other people would say, oh, my God, they are so risky, you're absolutely crazy. And that would probably be a company that you and I both share a passion for, which has starts with the big T for Tesla. So, <laughs> but, you know, that's a whole conversation in itself. And I think the main thing for me is getting a balance between companies that I think can be long-term winners in a portfolio to grow my money over time. I try not to trade. Um, I don't think trading, I think trading can be very, very difficult. And um, yeah, so that's kind of where I come from. So you talked about trading and this was, this was not in the, you know, my list of questions that had, you know, it's my preliminary draft of questions. So this is like, I'm throwing on, on the spot here, but this is related to trading a little bit. Do you, you know, because you've got this wide range of experience, right? Do you, do you do sort of, you know, uh, normalization of PE type of trades? Like, okay, this stock has, you know, dropped like to a 10 P and it probably should trade at a 20, like the Australian banks, right? I mean, they seem to have this PE range that they trade in. They go from 10 to 20, <laughs> you know, from, you know, okay, this thing is going to die to, okay, irrational exuberance. This is like the next Apple, <laughs> right? And there's that range. Have you ever tried that? Or is that something that you haven't yeah, tried? Sometimes. So I've got, I, it's, 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 I have to explain that I run two portfolios, one the investment one that I've lived off and the other one is my self-managed super fund. And because I'm sitting on a few losses in the investment one, I have actually tended more to be proactive on a kind of trading thing. You're absolutely right. I know one of your questions was about valuations. And that's a really good point because valuations are relative. And you just gave the best example. Stocks can trade in relative valuations and they will sometimes... Um, never move out of those relative valuations. So investors need to understand the dynamics of when a company becomes expensive, but it still can look cheap on a PE, if that makes mm -hmm. sense to you. And the classic example is in the 1980s, I learned very quickly that if you want to buy resource companies, you want to buy them on when they're on at really highly elevated PEs. Mm. <laughs> Because their earnings are totally bombed out, the, right. the commodities are totally bombed out, and they're not making any money. The times that you've got to really worry is when they suddenly, quote, unquote, look cheap. Right. And that's the great irony. And another example, I was listening to um, BCA, which is kind of doing a course at the moment on um, asset management. And they made an incredible point that in the early 1980s, when interest rates were incredibly elevated, the S&P forward PE, forward PE was three times. And, and that's just amazing. So we look mm -hmm. back and we actually go, okay, interest rates were 14% or higher, the cash rate. Well, then it was no wonder that nobody was sitting there in equities. So when it comes to if you want to trade, it's kind of, I look at stuff and go, is that a great stock? If it's sold off, what's the reason it's sold off? Is it a macroeconomic? Is it just like the trend momentum followers have decided to turn off and dump it? And normally you can actually pick up a good stock. Um, like, for example, Wes Farmers has sold off a lot recently. I sold it much higher and I'm going, okay, well, you know, it's a bit dull. It's a bit boring, but it's got a nice yield. It's a little bit safe to tuck some money away in. And, you know, so to me, you kind of would look if you were of a trading disposition of that falling off. And the same could be done with the likes of, you know, um, Amazon and, and Apple over in America. You know, we saw 
Apple gets these big sell-offs and it'll probably get another big sell-off after its, you know, um, announcement coming up next week about the new iPhone. Sometimes all the, the price, you know, discounts all that potential good news, everybody dumps it and maybe that's a good time to come in. Excellent. Okay. Um, I'm going to switch gears a little bit here. I'm going to talk about your book. Um, and I've only read the first chapter, which was, and, and I'm waiting actually, because, you know, you sent your, you said you, you're going to, you have sent me the book and I'm waiting for it to arrive because the first chapter was pretty rev- riveting. Uh, so this book is um, called uh, Shapelicity, a guide to investing in the U S stock market. It's so this is clearly not written for, I guess, those people who, are actively investing in the US stock market. I, I guess there's actually, I'll take that back because if you read the first chapter, there's actually a lot there for even those people who are regularly investing in that market to take away. Uh, but it, it is written, I guess, also for the for the audience that does not invest in the US stock market or, or what I like to call the global stock market, right? Doesn't have to, you know, because everybody has a home bias and, um, you know, if your home doesn't happen to be, I guess, uh, the US of A, then, you know, if you live in um, Australia, then you primarily are maybe focused on the Australian stock market. So I, I thought, this, you know, but the first chapter is 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 fabulous. I guess, uh, can you tell us what this book is about? And I guess what caused you to write this book? Or what, what was the motivation behind writing this book? The real reason was, is I just felt there are so many opportunities in the US, which I know if you're a US investor, you go, well, duh, yeah. (laughs) But the bottom line is, is that there is so much change happening in the world at the moment. And it was really to give people an idea of how to look at investing in the US, but also start to break down some of these these themes that have been running around, these narratives for the last 12, 18 months, this thing between value and growth and the dynamics between what the, the US 10-year treasury is doing, it's, it's, there's a lot of noise for investors at the moment of how um, the macroeconomic outlook is, is impacting, interfacing with equities. And if you're a stock picker, then probably you don't see that. But a lot of people who are in um, picking up information are going to get a lot of this information. So whilst the book, you're right, is for people to get an understanding of the US, it also goes breaks down a lot into terms of um, different ways to value companies, like if you're going to value a growth company, what impact interest rates actually have on company valuations, Um, cyclical companies, what are you looking for there, Uh, trying to point out factors that not all companies survive over the longer term. There is a natural um, turnover of companies, which Henrik Bessenbinder, the professor from Arizona, has talked about. And also I wanted to touch on the likes of ETF products and ESG investing and the machinations of those and how they're actually impacting on the stock market. So it's kind of more encompassing than just purely a learner's guide to what the US. So there are the parts of um, the difference between, um, you know, an old economy and a new economy stock. But I've really tried to flesh out some of the more interesting details of what's going to cause that switching between certain sectors and different cyclical stocks versus growth stocks, for example. And and while I haven't read the book, you know, 
two or three things that resonated a lot with me. One is, you know, this, this thing about in, investing in cyclical stocks, right? So uh, this, this is the point that you made about, you know, high PE is the right time to actually invest in um, in mining stocks. That actually makes a lot of sense, right? And you have to think about it as to why it is right. Um, and then I think the the impact of interest rate, right? That's, this is something that people don't think about a mm. lot, but they should, mm. right? Ultimately, I mean, if you think about traditional finance and how things are valued, right? If you think of everything as discounted free cash flow, then mm. that interest mm. rate does matter. Mm. And then it matters as to whether, and it matters even more if you, if the value of the company is all in the tail, right? So Correct. If it's all term, terminal value, yeah. then you better have an idea of what the terminal value, because that's going to be impacted by the discount rate. So Absolutely. I think these, are things, these things are really important. Actually, these are more intermediate things things for in investors, right? This this is when you sort of, you know, when you've got the basics, right? You really need to understand these things to actually make some very good decisions, right? I mean, they probably impact your decision process at that point. So I appreciate that a lot. And I think that's great. Um, I was going to ask, well, we, you, you know, there's a company that you and I both like, and uh, <laughs> my next question is going into that ter territory. And I'm just wondering whether the, at this point, the conversation is just going to go completely <laughs> off script, <laughs> but, but maybe it will, maybe it won't. Let's, we'll, we'll try to, we'll try to keep our enthusiasm and our, uh, I, I'll, I'll try to keep my fan, fandomness under control. So the, <laughs> the, ch the chapter that I am talking about is called Ford versus Tesla. Uh, and it's a super catchy title and i think it, it does exactly the job it is supposed to do but you know i was just going to ask you what is the message that you're trying to send here you know with that's the chapter action that you've made freely available to everyone right uh, what's the message that you're trying to get across um to the readers okay so the um apologies too for the neighbors as we're renting an apartment at the moment while we renovate so there's a few bangs um it was actually based on the first chapter of the first book which was ford um, versus ferrari a film that i absolutely loved so when i wrote the first book it's the hardest thing is actually to create a chapter that sets the scene for the rest of the book and why i loved ford versus ferrari so much is it examined through the film the two different corporate cultures of the companies incredibly different. So when I wanted to script the first chapter of the second book, well, I thought, well, this is a lay down misere. We have Ford versus Tesla, because ultimately Ford was the company that changed the world in the early 1920s. Okay, it was a complete uh, change maker, you know, the combustion engine, mass production of vehicles. And to me, this, the, the analogy or the similarity is what potentially Tesla is doing in our lifetime as we, you know, live and breathe. And I really wanted to show the, the, the stories of both these two companies and how much it's almost like we may have history repeating itself, but because we didn't live through the history 120 years ago or 100 years ago, we don't realise it. But potentially, or I believe very much, Tesla is such a game changer to the world. And so I wanted to explore, as you know, in that chapter to set the scene of how much the world is changing at this point in time. And there's always that, that um, analogy called the boiling frog. We don't realise that we're going through this until we actually come out the other side. Like who would have thought the smartphone 2007 
I mean, I, I rejected for someone that's progressive. It's quite bizarre. I rejected my rebellious side saying, I'm not going to get an Apple phone. I'm not going to get an Apple phone until my son who was, you know, 10 goes off oh, for God's sake, mom, stop being so stupid. Get an <laughs> Apple phone. Of course, now I'm a complete, you know, convertee, but um, I think that really it's, it's, it's symbolic of not only what's going on in the mobility, transport, energy industries, um, but it's also um, a symbol of what's going on in so many other industries at the moment. So old economy stocks incumbents, you're either innovate or you're disrupted and you die. That's right. I love, I love, I love this, uh, you know, disruption is actually a big thing for us at Seven Investing. You know, um, uh, Simon's his, Simon uh, was the co-founder, oh, sorry, the founder and CEO of uh, of seven investing his Twitter handle is seven innovator because he loves this idea of disruption. Um, I'm going to ask you, so you talked about this a bit. Do you mind discussing some of the, the mega trends, I guess, that you see the big, big trends are there, I guess the trends that have huge tailwinds behind them, you know, let's say three of them that really, you know, you know, entice you the three that you think have huge, huge potential. And you well, want to most, elaborate a little Yeah, sure. The most obvious one to me um, is decarbonization. You know, that's that's the you know the, the lay down one. The world really has to move very quickly. And as you know, the politics in Australia can be quite blurring on this, but it, it seems to me that quite a few investors in Australia have um, drunk the Kool-Aid on this now, as we know, lithium stocks are going through the roof. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think that that um, is a game changer. Uh, the obvious other ones are the ones that really have been uh, developed, accelerated, progressed, will continue to grow from the big um, Fang stocks, you know, we are talking cloud computing, digitalization, cybersecurity. None of those are actually going away. I mean, I'm yet to be convinced that the metaverse is going to actually turn into um, what Mark Zuckerberg would like. But reading about what NVIDIA was doing with the Omniverse is actually really, really interesting. So I think the transition from um, it's not like the physical world is going to disappear because no one wants that. And I think we'll all come out of lockdowns as, as people probably know, Australia and Sydney and, you know, Melbourne are in terrible lockdowns at the moment. And we were actually going to want to flock to actually being in physical presence, presence of other people. But I think undeniably the digitalization of the world is going to continue. And in one of my presentations, I, I, I presented two pictures. One was um, a picture of the globe with this interconnectedness and the pandemic did something really strange. It actually put up the geographical boundaries between countries really substantially. But at the other side, it actually melted away as we became more reliant on the internet and on our digital marketplaces and everything. And I think the seminal moment for that was Square's acquisition of Afterpay. You're actually seeing now that incumbent financial institutions can't hide behind the oligopolies, let's say, that have existed in Australia. And America's a different example because they've got thousands and thousands of banks. But the, the point is, is that we are going to continue to see those trends. So the major thing for investors is if you find that trend, what's the best way to play it? Because inevitably, 
when you get the secular tailwinds as you talk about and people see growth, then competition just moves into the market. And at the moment, what I am seeing is almost a bubble emerging in companies chasing the millennial purse and the millennial eyes. And particularly you're seeing it in that fintech payment space. And um, that's the one thing that you have to look out for is the, 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 the optics of the trends. They're wonderful stories. They're very attractive. You can get large total addressable markets and great numbers that you wrap around them and they become like the story trends or the story stocks. But ultimately, you've got to have the winning ones that are going to make it through all that competition or the regulation that it actually attracts. Because as we know, um, you know, there is probably going to move, be a move now towards more governments regulating, you know, with some of these larger companies, et cetera. That's right. Yeah. So regulation and tech, you know, now that I think that what I think you say is, is absolutely right, because on the one hand, we have boundaries, then boundaries are sort of become diffused because of tech, right? And we can do do so many things, you know, Today, people can work from anywhere because most companies are saying we no longer need a location, right? <laughs> and, and that changes the game. It changes a lot of other things for government and, um, you know, especially governments where there's um, uh, a social welfare system, right? Because that, that depends on a lot of other things. And those are being challenged in some ways. And then, of course, we could talk about crypto and that is challenging <laughs> uh, things in a whole different uh, way. Uh, but... You, you're right. So if you can find those winners that have the potential to live for the long term and mm. continue growing, those are the ones that are going to deliver. Of course, you cannot get every one of them, but you, know, you want to try to get them. Um, <laughs> I, I also will note that you said decarbonization and not climate change. I love that. Actually, I'm going to use that terminology <laughs> now <laughs> because that actually climate change comes with a lot of baggage, whereas if you say decarbonization doesn't seem to have that much baggage. So uh, I love the decarbonization angle. That is actually fantastic. Um, uh, this is maybe for people, you know, you've got this whole heap of experience and, and, and sometimes just, you know, as you said, decarbonization versus um, climate change, that's a different angle actually looking at, you know, it's, the words change, the angle changes. Um, I'm just interested in understanding how you build uh, an edge. Uh, I guess, what's your edge? And what would you tell, and I guess, investors who have recently started or, you know, have been investing for the last few years, three, four years, which have been fantastic bull market. Um, you know, so everybody thinks that, you know, we're all geniuses, right? Because the stocks only go up, but they sometimes go down too, and they go down hard. So uh, given your experience, given what you have seen, What's your edge and how do you think an investor can build an edge? Okay, so really good question. And the first thing I want everybody to ask themselves, well, what edge are you trying to achieve? <laughs> because I think people get really caught up, particularly in the, the, the here and the now and the momentum. And um, as you say, it's a bull market. So there's lots of momentum traders. There's lots of trend followers. There's, you know, stocks that just move into the stratosphere and then disappear off the face of the earth. So I guess when you ask for an edge, you have to, everybody needs to ask themselves, am I here to invest to make the biggest absolute returns I possibly can so I can retire in one year? <laughs> 
<laughs> or am I going to stick around and become that wonderful huge tree that just keeps on growing and growing and reaches to the sky and you create your Warren Buffett type of wealth? And to create an edge, you have to ask yourself, am I trying to compete against the market? Am I competing against myself? Am I competing against somebody else? And I think this is the problem for investors. It's really hard to stick to your knitting because you're constantly feeling, well, well, why is my stock not going anywhere? And that stock keeps going up. Well, therefore, my decision is incorrect. Therefore, I better jump onto that stock. So I think the edge is trying to control one's emotions and remember what one's goals are because great stocks, even the one we like, like Tesla, like this year is kind of turning into, you know, after such an amazing year last year, you couldn't expect Tesla to go up in an exponential line this year. I mean, it's just unrealistic. And, but so a lot of people go, well, I'm bored of that one. I'm going to, you know, disappear, go away. But in fact, this is probably the year where you want to be accumulating it. And it can take good stocks a very long time of doing nothing before suddenly they take off. And by the time they're taking off, some investors who haven't been on that are then kicking themselves so they can't get emotionally over the hump of investing. So the edge is knowing yourself, knowing your stocks and knowing what you are trying to achieve and not trying to make it a constant race to be able to beat one's chest and say, I've got the chicken dinner winner every day because that's just not going to happen even every week. You know, you're not always going to win. And the other edge is, is, is remember, you've got to cut your losses sometimes. And I've seen so many instances of uh, stocks that have been really popular at a certain point of time only to disappear and never return. I call them the, the, the bottom draw. Remember when, you probably don't remember, but they used to have things like share certificates, a piece of paper saying you own 100 shares of. I knew an older gentleman who said he had like, oh, probably like 500 old share certificates of companies that were going to be the next best thing. <laughs> Disappeared. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's the edge. It's no silver bullet to how to invest. It's really basic stuff. Um, knowing yourself, knowing your companies, and not chasing everything. Um, and also, yeah, I'll save a couple more for the other questions because otherwise, I'll use all the goodies all at once. <laughs> you, you know, I love one thing. I'll, I'll reiterate this. The, the very fact that the first thing you said was know yourself, right? So basically control yourself, know yourself, know what you are. I think that's so important, right? And it's so underrated, knowing mm. yourself. Because if you don't know, any, I mean, you, if you don't know what type of, you know, what you can, how well you can handle volatility, mm. right? <laughs> if, then you shouldn't be in volatility, you know, volatile stocks if you don't, if you can't handle volatility, right? And that's, it's a basic lesson, right? If you can handle volatility, maybe the volatile stocks are just fine for you. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, yeah, so I think knowing yourself, and then if you know yourself, then saying, no, that's not for me, is perfectly fine because, well, that's not for you, then that's perfectly yeah. okay. I, I love that, you know, thinking about the, um, the mindset. Um, I was going to ask you about valuation, but we talked about valuation already uh, a little bit, uh, unless you want to add to it, then I'll make the no. floor open to you. Okay, then we'll pass on that. I was, you know, I was going to make this quick, as we're getting towards the end of, uh, you know, the, or the 
the, the relatively towards the end, but I wanted to ask um, if you would like to share, I guess, your top investing regrets or, you know, or if any couple of big mistakes that you made that, you know, and perha perhaps any lessons that you took from that, um, you know, so that maybe others won't repeat those mistakes. Although, you know, what I like to say is that, you know, unless you have made these mistakes, <laughs> you are very likely to actually make the mistakes and making mistakes is just fine. But still, I always like to hear what mistakes other people have done because it's just, you know, it's like, oh, okay, at least it gives me confirmation bias. Yeah, it's, you, you will only learn from your mistakes. That's the bottom line. I mean, the universe has a way, it keeps on, you know, it's a bit like I always say, a wet fish slapping you in the face will keep on hitting you until you wake up and smell the coffee beans and you stop doing it. Um, I think, look, greatest mistakes, everybody's done it. You, you, you One sells, I have, sold stocks too early and mm -hmm. really important. I read your Netflix story. Uh, okay. <laughs> hey, I've got, I've got the Netflix T-shirt too, so don't worry. Uh, I've, right. got, I, I've, I've got that story as well. Um, I've got a really funny story. I'll keep it really sweet. So it's it's the 1990s in London. The dot-com boom is just getting going. There's networking parties about everybody wanting to get involved in the internet. And this, this uh, East Coast American, very wealthy, comes across and he's, he's raising money, private equity, so to speak, for a nanotechnology company in the US, okay, with MIT. And it was basically... Uh, nanotechnology, 1990s, okay? Is late that 90s. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That already. Yeah. Okay. I'm very curious now. Yeah. And um, it was it was called nanotechnology anyway. And so they were basically it was the transfer of information, you know, through an optic fiber or whatever, using light rather than you know the old whatever. And she she's going like, yeah, I did understand it at the time, but the bottom line was, as I put my money in a little bit, not too much, you know, you never because it was unlisted, yada yada, and it did really well. And they were coming around for another raising of fundraising because because, you know, they wanted some more money and the big family offices in New York wanted the shares. I doubled my money. Did I want to sell? No, I said, I'm holding on for the longer term. You know, this is going to NASDAQ, yada, yada, yada. Well, the long and the short of the story was is that the, the, the main protagonist, the owner, bankrupted the company and took the technology and started up again. Great. Yeah, so we all lost our money. And then I had one more, one more little attempt, and I always know, so there's a point to the story, when I start looking outside of equities for other ideas, okay, in private markets, um, I usually know that that's a really bad sign. If there are no buys in the equity market, you certainly don't want to go into the private markets. And if you do want to go into the private markets, you really need a lot of money because you've got to buy, have exposure to like 50 startups and maybe you'll get lucky with one. So my little hint is if you can't find any buys in the equity markets, it usually means that it's probably not time to be buying any asset at that stage. <laughs> That's that's actually a good one. Yeah. And, and and when you're investing in the private world, right? I mean, the hit rate is very low, right? The hit yeah, rate very. It's very, very low. So you have to be, um, I guess the, the silver lining would be that for most people who would actually consider going there, they probably have some money that they can lose at that point. <laughs> so it's probably okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking about people losing money, but yeah, I mean, yeah. at that point, if, if you can afford to do some private investing, then, you know, yeah, the law of averages basically say that you have to do a lot of them. Correct. Or and I get it's, it was more about the case of I know myself again. When I start looking outside, 
of the equity markets because I go, oh, it's too much risk or I don't like it. It's usually a sign, no, just sit on your cash at the moment and wait and be patient. The opportunity will become will come to you. Okay, since we are, uh, you know, I'm from uh, Sydney. You're you're Sydney based. Yep, uh, yep. You're Sydney based as well, and um, you know, you are um, refurbing, rebuilding at this time. Mm-hmm. It's you know, popular pastime <laughs> in this part of the world. Um, I'm going to ask you: property investing versus uh, stock investing. Which one or both? Well, that's, this wasn't on the list. Oh, this wasn't on the list. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes I have to throw some curveballs <laughs> to make it interesting. Uh, just, just curious, just curious. And there's yeah, no right no. answer to this, I think. Yeah, no. Um, because I haven't actually had a wage per se for quite a long time, property investing is actually not an option with the capital I have available to me. So I've always split my asset class pretty much 50-50 between you know, my home. I haven't had debt since 1994 or something. Um, so between property and then my equities, um, if I want to invest in property, well, hey, there's enough fabulous, you know, property investment trusts in America and Australia. I don't need to go out and buy investment properties. So no, that's that's just not my gig. Um, I like equities because I like the liquidity of them. I did venture into corporate bonds. Um, didn't like them very much. They have a terrible habit here in Australia of just liquidity disappearing completely. So if you actually have a massive drawdowns in the markets and you're getting uncomfortable or whatever, not that I'm, I am I borrow to invest again, I would never do that. I'm too risk averse in this phase in, in you know my life. But equally, when I was younger, it's just not something I would do. I just sort of think that that's a risk too far that's that's again that's taking the fast route to try and make your millions um but um yeah i just yeah i don't tend to go down that property investment route and if you do people can come very unstuck because mm-hmm. it's an illiquid asset or can be very illiquid and and leverage works uh, beautifully to the upside and actually works <laughs> wonderfully you know poorly on the downside Correct. right so yeah so that's the other thing with uh, property yeah. investing is that you 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 would likely have unless you are uh, very rich to start off with if you're very rich then why are you investing anyways <laughs> you probably don't need to uh but um yeah i think that's the main main thing if you've got a lot of properties and you've got you know 10 percent invested capital and the rest of it is debt then you are levered up which helps your returns, but it may not as well. So Exactly. And a lot of people that um, uh, had margin loans uh, went were wiped out in the GFC. And, you know, there's a lot of sad stories from that. And that's, I think, you know, a lesson to everybody, as you made the point about, you know, we're in bull markets and everyone's a genius. And um, I still have very vivid memories of how bear markets just, you know, can... <laughs> Totally changed the whole specter of everything. <laughs> yeah, and 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 if you're if you're you're levered up, then you know the bear market comes to you in a hurry. Really comes to you in a hurry. So <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm gonna okay from failures. I want to talk about a little bit about successes. If you would be interested in sharing, I guess one or two stories of yeah. uh, investments that have worked out wonderfully and you know been game changers. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that I I'm I'm kind of proud of is that. Um, as we were discussing in Australia, when you invest in Australia, everybody has traditionally bought, quote, unquote, the blue chips, the miners, the banks, etc. And I made a decision um, in um, 2015 um, to sell a lot of them just after they kind of reached their peaks. 
Um, particularly the bank stocks and in Australia, you know how attractive they are because of their dividends. But I actually made a decision in 2015 that I sort of saw that for me, that's not the route, the route that I wanted to go down. I thought the banks were going to be challenged. And I started my investment journey subsequently um, into the US then. And I remember a friend who has also invested overseas for a long time that lives in London going, oh, you, you know, you can't buy Amazon at $700. And I kind of went, why? And she goes, well, it's gone up so much. And that's kind of the, the point as well. You have to be really careful looking at great stocks from where they've come from because great stocks can just keep on going and you can buy them anywhere along. So my transition, I think, in my investment journey has been... Uh, good not only in terms of making money, creating diversification. I'm really happy. I don't want all my assets just in Australian dollars. But also I think it's really good for the mind and staying young. And I know for younger listeners, they're going to go, well, that sounds really bizarre, but it's actually really important to have an open mind and keep on looking at things. And because as we've discussed, it's quite a a closed country in Australia. There is innovation and they tend to be sometimes smaller stocks and there's great success stories, but you kind of get overwhelmed in America. There's just so much to choose from. It's like this is the biggest candy store known to anybody and it doesn't mean you go out and buy everything. But at the end of the day, it's really good to interact with that. So I guess it was a very big decision. I think it was the right decision. And it has also led a pathway in other ways to being able to write um, books and have better understandings of how to invest and how to invest for me. Fantastic. I love that story. Um, and, you know, I, th- I think it resonates a lot with me because uh, it, the one thing I find very interesting is if you look at, I don't even say US stocks, I say global. Mm. And a lot of the great global companies would eventually have ADRs and things like that. It will be actually mm. listed somewhere in the US market. But I think global stocks give you a global perspective, which is really, yeah. really useful, right? And teaches you about how the world is, which is uh, which is fantastic. And our very own Atlassian, for example, decided that they should be listed in NASDAQ. I guess we will have a square a CDI probably mm. trading on on the ASX, so that's that's I think a win for the ASX in the short term, or or, or in the medium term at least. Um, some parting words of wisdom: three things that you want um, our listeners to take away from this conversation. Oh, gee, uh, never stop reading, never mm-hmm. stop learning, but uh, also just always have a, a little bit of reflection and a time to set set and reassess where you're at with your risk profile and manage your risk for yourself, I think is really, really important. That's kind of how I see it. And I think people don't understand risk very well. Fantastic. I really appreciate the time you uh, spent with us today. Is there, I will put the show notes in, or I'll put in the article that accompanies uh, our uh, podcasts. And basically we'll have a YouTube version, which we recorded and we'll put it on uh, the various podcast platforms. But on the article, I'll link, uh, I'll provide a link to the book. Um, I guess the best way to get the book would be via the website. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, or- for, for Australians, if you're overseas or whatever, it's it's on Amazon. It's basically online okay. everywhere. So Booktopia, Amazon, all good okay. bookstores in Australia, or you can buy author signed copies by myself from my website. <laughs> I will provide the links to uh, the Amazon one, or if you send me, uh, I'll actually find the Amazon link. That shouldn't be that hard. And I'll provide the link to the website. So for anybody who wants a signed copy, they can, I guess, get in touch and get a signed copy. Absolutely. Thank you very much for spending time with us today. 
My pleasure. What a, what a fun, interesting, hopefully, conversation. Thank you. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.